Hello, and welcome to HLAW's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today we will be discussing Holly Brewer's article published in October 2017 in the American Historical Review, entitled Slavery, Sovereignty, and Inheritable Blood, Reconsidering John Locke and the Origins of American Slavery. Dr. Brewer is Burke Chair of American History, an associate professor at the University of Maryland. She is a specialist in early American history and the early British Empire. The article is part of a larger book project that will situate the origins of American slavery and the ideas and legal practices associated with the divine rights of kings. Tentatively entitled Inheritable Blood, Slavery and Sovereignty in Early America and the British Empire. Dr. Brewer, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became interested in situating the impact of political ideas in context across England and its American empire? I think I first became interested in that those kinds of questions when actually when actually when I was an undergraduate, I was taking a class called Justice, which is now quite well known, that was then first being taught at Harvard. And taught by a guy named, a professor named Michael Sandel. And he taught it as, from the perspective of abstract political theory, it was sort of ideas about justice and particularly democracy throughout over the last more than 2,000 years. And I found myself asking all these questions that he wasn't asking. And so then when I went to graduate school in history, I kept thinking about how abstract ideas are put into actual laws and policy and what they mean for real people. So that's really the longer-term origins of, of how I came to this kind of work. My first book does this as well. I've been a professor at NC State and now at University of Maryland, and I did my graduate work at UCLA in California. Could you briefly tell us what your article is about? In it, I argue that we, for historians for a long time, have been trying to understand the origins of slavery from a perspective that America was, if you will, liberal from the beginning, that America was making its own laws separate from the empire, that it was had a long history of elected assemblies, and that if we're going to understand slavery, it become it is actually rather difficult because slavery seems to be the contradiction of ideas of equality and representation. So what historians have been doing is trying to figure out how the two fit together as though they fit together really neatly. And John Locke, who uh, in the 17th century was the most crucial figure for the origins of democratic ideas, very influential on the American founders, for example, He's become a kind of nexus through which a lot of earlier scholars have tried to rationalize the two. And they said, oh, look, he owned shares in the Royal African Company. And even though his ideas seem to be contradictory to slavery, they must not be. So here's how we can rationalize them them and say they're the same. And what I'm doing in this article is saying, actually, we shouldn't be trying to rationalize these two. We should recognize that there are huge struggles over power in the 17th century, that the colonies are not separate from the empire, that the empire is making has a powerful role in making laws, and that the um, origins of slavery emerge in in a larger debate 
between the ideas of the divine and hereditary rights of kings and the ideas of consent of the governed and equality, on the other hand, and that the ideas of the divine right of kings went hand in hand with the origins and emergence of slavery. And it's in that debate, it's in that conflict that the origin of slavery arises, the conflict over these questions, and from the perspective, from the side that's supporting the hereditary and divine rights of kings, that slavery is mostly emerging, not from the side that's supporting equality and consent. I'm interested in how you work with your sources and glean the story from them. One sentence that stands out in the article describes a section of a volume of Virginia laws as well-thumbed and slightly dirtier. One can imagine Locke's inky hands paging through the volume that August. Can you talk about your sources and how you got the most out of them? I am what some, some of my colleagues would call an archive rat. I love to be working with original documents and hard-to-find documents. And I also like to think a lot about how documents got saved and how they were put together and why they were created in the first place. So what I began to do as I worked on this project was to think not only about what survives for me to look at, but how it came there in the first place and when it came and at whose orders and who made the effort to transcribe materials. And I was focusing really hard on that question of what Locke and the other members of the Board of Trade knew about slavery in the 1690s and what information they were getting about slavery in Virginia and, and the status of Af people of African descent. And so as I was reading through this volume and thinking about what we thought we know, what, what we think we know as historians about what they knew then <laughs> versus what I was seeing there, it really struck me what was missing, but also how it looked like it was read at the time. So the fact that there were these pages that seemed more well-read, that there seemed to be almost darkness about them as though people at the time who had inky fingers had looked to them more carefully, it made me conscious of this is a source not only that I am reading today, but that someone like John Locke on the Board of Trade with oversight of authority over the colonies, he and his fellow members, how they were they were struggling to learn and to understand and reading it the same way I was almost, but at a different time. So that I think that says something about that that sentence anyway. Why is the narrative that equality for whites came only at the expense of inequality for blacks a fruitful but limited frame? I think it's been fruitful. It's originally coined or most powerfully coined by a man named Edmund Morgan in a book called American Slavery, American Freedom. And that book has been voted over the years many, many times the most important book by American historians. I, you know, I guess particularly in the 1980s and 1990s, it was incredibly influential. It's been fruitful because it helps to understand how people, especially at the time of the American Revolution, when there was so much discussion of uh, consent, a government based on the consent of the governed, and all men are created equal, it helped understand how some people, some of the founders could support those principles and yet not oppose slavery. But that's just one perspective, one way of trying to reconcile the two trying to reconcile those sets of ideas. And in fact, there are a lot more 
ways that people tried to figure out where they stood with respect to these various questions. And some of the answers were, in fact, to oppose slavery, and some were to oppose ideas of equality. And there were a lot more ideas in in between. So in other words, because we've become so obsessed with, we, we, we have a sort of beginning principle of people accepted the principles of, we would now say, democracy, um, then the only way you can explain the persistence of slavery, even the origins of slavery, is in racism, we've actually been missing a huge part of the story, a huge part of the history, a huge part of the struggle. It actually flattens the revolution, makes it seem less radical. We've been telling a story that's too unified when, in fact, there was a great deal of disagreement. How does your work relate to the historiography surrounding Locke and slavery? How does your analysis of Locke's writings change how we understand the historiographical and philosophical debates about democracy? So, especially for the last 40 or 50 years, as we have taken slavery more seriously and paid more attention to the America's problematic history in terms of slavery and taking, and in fact, Europe's, I think in general, problematic history with slavery and its consequences for African Americans even today and I guess African nations and global conflict more broadly. The a lot of scholars in different fields ranging from history to political science to philosophy have looked to John Locke to try to reconcile the two and have focused in on um the fact that he briefly owned shares in the or they just say that he owned shares in the Royal African Company and then he wrote, they claim, single-handedly, or the perception is he was the main author of a, something called the Fundamental Constitutions of Carolina, which was a frame of government for North and South Carolina, written in 1669, that supported slavery as well as hereditary nobility. So the effort has been to see those two issues as evidence of his actual policy or what he promoted, and to see his ideas as being abstract and somehow reconcilable with those two. And it's a way of understanding how democracy and slavery fit together in, you know, from the perspective of political theory or philosophy. And so it's it becomes a neat way of explaining that seeming contradiction. But in fact, it's never been really a comfortable fit because there's so many places in his political theory where he says so clearly slavery is wrong. I mean, he begins the first sentence of his of his first treatise with the words, slavery is so vile and miserable and a state of man, it is a wonder anyone would support it. So it's been a real effort. And I, what my work does is says quite bluntly that we have been starting with the wrong supposition. We've been assuming that Locke's ideas were the ones shaping the course of government policy in the 17th century. And that the, you know, the colonies were independent and electing their own representatives and making their own laws. But in fact, the key people in power were, were promoting a very different set of ideas and putting in place people who believed very differently. And it's in those contexts that we should be looking for the origins of slavery and even John Locke's brief ownership of shares in the Royal African Company, which when he was cooperating with the Stuart Kings who were promoting hereditary nobility and monarchy and slavery. 
and um, that the origins of his political ideas actually come in reaction to what he had done for the Stuarts. And in a, as a big player, he was sort of like a clerk or a lawyer helping to write the frame of government for Carolina. He wasn't starting from scratch. He was doing what he was told. But his role in, as a big player is what helped feed his reaction to, to slavery and to uh, despotic monarchy and helped lay the basis for its traditions of government, which has become this really important text for democratic theory. So it's, he emerges in opposition, not in cooperation with the earlier scholarship. How does the legitimization of the Stuart dynasty relate to justifications for slavery? The Stuart king, starting with James I, who succeeded Queen Elizabeth in 1603, the Stuart kings were very obsessed with their divine right to rule. And this comes as early as 1598. In James, the, the future James I wrote a book called The True Law of Free Monarchies, in which he talks at length about the divine rights of kings and how they're above the law. And it's only for God to judge, not for their subjects. And their subjects should obey them no matter what. They have a hereditary obligation to obey. So if they once had an ancestor, he swore an oath of allegiance to a king, the descendants are all bound as well. And this kind of logic is uh, absolutely the same logic that was used to justify slavery and to justify hereditary status more broadly. And you can see it reflected in the both the p policies put out put forth by the Stuarts directly, but also in the kinds of the kinds of sermons that are given in the the Church of England after 1662, especially when there's a reform of the of the Book of Common Prayer, and you can see it in the laws that are crafted often with um, Stuart in help and intervention. Uh, and that are that they sign off on that the colonies that the colonists help to craft as well. So in other words, it's a this kind of this idea that you're born to a status, you're born the prince, the son of a king, with the right to rule. You're born the subject, a subject, the son of a subject, with the obligation to obey. You're born a slave, the son of a slave, with an obligation to obey. Obey on a much not only king but also master is a kind of coherent whole. How did the legal concepts of dominion and lordship manifest themselves during Stuart plans for colonial development? They manifested on many levels. They manifested first with regard to the great, what are called the great proprietaries or the great, the huge grants of land that the Stuarts give out starting in the, well, 1620s, I suppose. I, I guess you could, well, <laughs> we could talk about the uh, Bermuda and Virginia as well, but they're connected. But the idea that a person or possibly a group of people would could be given by the king not only a parcel of land, but the right to rule over it, it embodies the, the notion of dominion. This, The highest form of it, of course, is with the king himself. There are certain thinkers in the early 17th century, like Henry Swinburne, and uh, to some extent also Edward Cook in his Institute of the Laws of England, or which is a, the first volume of which is a commentary on an older feudal text, where the idea that the king, the, the idea is that the king owns all of the land of England, and in that ownership lies his ability to govern all who uh, live on it. 
and in a way it's it's there's a lordship in the king that includes even the power of life and death over those who lives on it because he gives them through tenancy and other privileges certain rights of ownership subsidiary to his and even the nobles are dependent on the king in crucial ways and he can he has ability according to this set of legal ideas to revoke their ownership and reclaim the land and to grant it to somebody else. And so um, these ideas are embodied on many different levels in ideas about lordship and ownership of the land. So you have the king's power, you have the power of the great proprietors, but it, the idea of dominion also expresses itself in the colonies in, with a concept called head rights. By royal proclamation in all royal colonies, the king gave out certain certain amount of land to those who bought bound laborers. So in Virginia, it was 50 acres of land to anyone who would buy a Christian indentured servant who was bound to serve for usually seven years, or to buy a, a person who was um, not Christian, usually African or Indian, who would be bound to serve for a longer period, usually for life and possibly hereditary. The king, the Charles II, proclaimed that anybody who bought either one of these bound laborers would be given 50 acres of land, the right to 50 acres of land in Virginia. This was called a head right. In Jamaica, it was even more extreme. By royal proclamation in 1664, Charles II proclaimed that anyone who even said he was um, with the governor's approval, who said he was, as a gentleman, he planned to import a hundred laborers, whether Christian or or from Africa or elsewhere, that such a person, just the promise that they would import a hundred laborers would entitle them to 30 acres per laborer they planned to import, and so they could given, be given a 3,000-acre plantation uh, on that basis of just future promises. And obviously the implication is if they didn't, in fact, import a hundred laborers, some of that could be taken away, but the idea was that they could then have contiguous estates. All of this embodied dominion. What incentives did the Stuarts have for encouraging the royal headright policy? Their incentives were twofold. On the one hand, I think for them in a certain, I don't know, I'm not really a psychologist, but I think there was a certain ideological continuity or continuity in belief structure um, about their own divine right to rule and their ability to enslave in perpetuity people who were not Christian and not subject and have, make them have a lower status. There was a coherent logic to it that made their own position as king, um, as, as either as Charles II or as James II, for example, seem somewhat more secure. It, it, it's ratified, if you will, the hierarchy of the social order in every respect, slavery at the bottom end and the king at the other. But, but the, there were also pretty clear financial incentives. So large estates with bound labor produce staple crops, unlike, um, say, family-owned farms, which is more what you, see, you saw happening and developing in Massachusetts. And very quickly, the, even under Charles I, uh, there was a realization in the, in the, in the monarchical courts that 
uh, having large estate with bound labor and having crops that were produced meant that there was crops that were imported to England for trade that could be taxed, profited, and mined the pockets of merchants and many others, and that, that there was a sense that that was a better model for how they wanted the empire to develop. And most particularly, um, the Stuarts started putting very large taxes, um, they called them customs at some points, or excise taxes at others, they're kind of complex, and I won't go into the details, but those taxes be, were even in the 1630s providing a substantial source of revenue, and by the 1680s were providing about a third of crown revenue. So if we compare this to, say, the revenue of the federal government today, and we said, if we said there is a one particular source that provides a third of the revenue of the federal government, we would recognize that it's really, really important. And in the 1680s, huge taxes on sugar and tobacco were providing that level of revenue to the English crown. What post-1660 laws gradually stripped black servants of their rights as subjects? And in what ways did post-1660 laws about bond slavery follow royal ideas that emphasized heredity? So I'm going to start actually really quickly with Virginia, even though it was not the first to impose such laws. And in 1662, Virginia passed a law that said that the, that the status is hereditary through the mother, and so that if a mother is... It doesn't, it doesn't actually use the word slave, but by implication, if the mother is held for life, the child will also be held for life. And it actually is part of a, a set of laws that were passed, you know, all in sequence right together. And one of the other laws said that the children of indentured servants would also be bound until they reached adulthood. So that was not for, not for blacks. It was for white Christians who, but who were bound laborers. And then there was an, another law right at the same time that recognized the div divine nature and power and hereditary power of Charles II that recognized the restoration because he'd just been restored to the throne. So they all worked together in a kind of logic written into the law books and approved and signed off by Charles II himself. And indeed, there's evidence that William Berkeley, the governor of Virginia, had gotten pre-approval for these laws before he went back and brought them to the Virginia people to get approved. So in other words, it wasn't these weren't laws that were bubbling up from below. They were actually laws that had the consent of the king, it looks like, even before they were passed or presented in, uh, in Virginia. But in Barbados, Barbados was the first colony to develop a significant slave code, and they, they passed a slave code there in the first, for the first time in a comprehensive way in 1661. Before that, there were elements of what we would call slavery that were adopted that tried to fit with certain elements of the older common law and particularly the law of feudal villains. So they were doing that even before 1660 uh, with an argument that people who were aliens, who were not subjects, could be actually kept as feudal villains attached to the land. But after 1662, they went a lot farther, not only um, making hereditary status firm, more firm, but, but setting in place a whole bunch of policies that made perpetual, it made it easier to buy and sell people to confirm ownership of runaways, to discipline people who were uh, enslaved and who were committing crime, etc. One of the things that most is most disturbing is tracing, I've been tracing in Barbados, 
the emergence of the practice of reimbursing masters for their costs of their executed slaves. And they started out in Barbados doing it just for a few of the most serious crimes, like um, treason, for example, or killing a master or something like that. And then they move on to using it for even very, very minor crimes so that uh, people who are um, free whites who are living around large planters but who don't own a lot themselves won't be victimized by by enslaved people. Anyway, this is getting too complicated, but um, to to be really brief about it, just to, so you can see the implications of this kind of innovation, between 1750 and 1775, according to Kay and Carey and their, their really interesting book on slavery in North Carolina, the major cost of North Carolina's colonial government was reimbursing masters for the cost of their executed slaves. They spent more on that than any other single thing. Yeah. I know, staggering, huh? Now could you tell us a bit about Locke's two treatises of government? Sure. Locke's two treatises of government is divided into two books. The first book, which is much less read on every level and much less quoted in the United States today and around the world, the first book is actually a refutation and a challenge of Stuart arguments for rightful government that were being preached in pulpits and being articulated by supporters of the divine right of kings in the 16, well, starting, I guess, in the 1630s and 40s, but um, again in the 1670s and 80s. And particularly, it's a challenge to a man named Sir Robert Filmer. And it's laid out as a step-by-step -step challenge to what he argued. But it wasn't, of course, only he who had been arguing that and or, or promoting that set of, a logical set of ideas. And it's really important, I would argue, to read that first book because it puts in context, context what he's doing in the second one, which is the one that we are much more familiar with today. And it's interesting, when you talk to students, if you assign just the second book, uh, the second treatise, the students look at it and say, well, of course, of course we agree with all these ideas. These sound like what we learn in the Declaration of Independence. The same set of principles of in a state of nature, all men are created equal, that governments are formed in order to, you know, by agreement of the people, usually adult men, to come together for their own protection, to provide basic protection from violence and other injuries, and therefore they create a government. And that's purpose of the government is just to do what the people want it to do, and if it doesn't stop doing that, then they have the right to dissolve it. So the, um, the second treatise says a lot more than that, but some of the essentials of it are, in fact, articulated in America's Declaration of, Declaration of Independence, and deliberately so by Thomas Jefferson. But it also follows on, in Locke's own original work, the second treatise follows closely on the first. There's a great deal in it that argues against the divine right of kings in line-by-line line ways and that argues against what the Stuarts were doing in terms of slavery in their New World Empire. And I argue in this article that the fact that it was really important for, for Locke when he was writing the Second Treatise that James II, who was king of England, was not only a despotic king, ignoring the will of his people and undermining elected government um, pretty much everywhere in the realm, 
but that he was also the person who was, as governor of the Royal African Company, in charge of the slave trade, responsible in the 1680s for probably about 100,000 people being bought, you know, brought from Africa to the New World and sold as slaves. And that uh, Locke was, when he's writing it and thinking about, when he's saying things like in 1689, when he's saying the glorious revolution against James II, which was a, a bloodless revolution, um, that it had to be fought because the principles of an advocate for slavery were being preached in ever public. He means the principles of James II, and not only with respect to monarchy, but with respect to slavery. How do Locke's theories about slavery relate to just war theory? So there were earlier scholars who had over many centuries articulated ideas of just war, when a just war could be fought, and what penalties could be taken against the defeated if they had in fact started an unjust war. And these ideas actually had roots in Roman law. But in English law, the first time some version of them was articulated was in the 13th century with somebody called Henri de Bracton, or Bracton, as he cited in much later law. And there, there he argued um, that people who are captured as a result of a unjust war can be, um, though their life is forfeit, but that instead of being executed, they can agree to serve somebody else essentially as a kind of villain. And that, those ideas were, are picked up in natural law theories in various ways on the continent. And, I mean, it wasn't just Bracton writing them. There were, there were continental theorists earlier. And in the 17th century, a lot of a lot of philosophers were arguing about these ideas, and in fact, in, even in the 16th century, uh, there were Spanish philosophers arguing about them. Probably some of the most famous in the 17th century writing before or about this time, uh, before Locke, uh, Grotius, Hugo Grotius, Puffendorf, others. How did Locke challenge court rulings that perpetuated the myth that people are things? So. This, you can't really see this very clearly in the article because I just couldn't go into depth, but one of the chapters of my book is about how Charles II, who was a strong supporter of slavery, he really needed a legal structure behind the buying and selling of people. And so he used the high courts in England, he appointed judges to the high courts in England who would do what he wanted on that question. And he tried to get an imperial slave code through Parliament twice in the 1660s and 1670s, and both times it failed. So then he turned to the high courts, and judges at this point had their seats at the king's pleasure. So we can see examples of what it means for somebody to serve at the pleasure of the president now, usually in an executive branch position. But imagine if the members of the Supreme Court served at the pleasure of the President of the United States and they could be dismissed, appointed and dismissed, literally in the middle of the night. And you have a sense of how much power the Kings of England had over the High Court judges in England in the late 17th century. And in fact, there are examples of (laughs) the Chief Justice pulling the members of the High Court in one evening and before breakfast. Four of them are fired and replaced with others who will do what the King wants. Pretty pretty chilling, huh? (laughs) Anyway, so there was a really crucial court case in 1677 involving 
about the question of slavery, which essentially said that people, for the for legal purposes, could be considered goods or things, and that all the laws that protected the ownership of things could be used to protect the ownership of people, which gave this really powerful legal mechanism for financing slave purchases and for essentially being able to litigate about the ownership of people as property. And and it just transformed the legal landscape across the empire. I can show that immediately on the ground, it, it, it meant that whereas before nobody could write a deed over the sale of a person because it couldn't be proved in a court, after, after 1677 in this court case, you have essentially the factors, the, the salesmen for the Royal African Com- Company writing contracts so that people could buy slaves on time over a matter of months or years. So rather like we would buy a car, you walk into the dealership, you write a contract saying you're going to pay so much over the next whatever it is, four or five years. This is immediately what, what was legally enabled by these high court decisions in England in 1677. And Locke's two treatises of government criticizes this directly. He talks about how even in cases of unjust war, um, where somebody's life is forfeit and therefore they have to serve another person, they could agree to serve another person as a slave in exchange for their life because they've essentially committed a great crime. He says that um, they still essentially retain some ownership of of themselves, and it's only in order they are only obliged to serve so long as they have to to repay the crime, and that the the service is never hereditary. And moreover, he talks at great length about what, what the Declaration of Independence later calls inalienable rights, um, he, he uses some of the same language, that there's certain things that people can't completely give away that belong to them themselves and that a man's, what a person owns first and foremost is himself. And so a lot of the scholarship uh, by, you know, that has circulated among um, historians and philosophers in the latter part of the 20th century about John Locke and questions of property and the efforts to sort of explain how slavery equates with, with Locke's theory um, purposely essentially say, well, Locke supports the ownership of property and since people were being bought and sold then, he must have supported the ownership of slaves. But in fact... In the actual case law, this, this was highly debated in this period. So you had this first case that I mentioned, Butts versus Penny in 1677, was reser- reversed after the Glorious Revolution in 1696 in another case called Chamberlain versus Harvey. That actually Locke would almost, almost certainly, I mean, he must have known about it, partly because his nephew and protege was in then essentially in law school, studying law in the court, but he would have known about it for many other reasons. And it tried to reverse Butts versus Penny and said, basically, no man can own another. And that kind of language exists throughout Locke. That kind of language of limited ownership exists uh, throughout the two treatises, the second treatise in particular. He criticizes in several places, and I point out one in the article, where in the first the first treatise where Locke it very explicitly criticizes the kinds of principles that people can be simple things that are put forward to justify butts versus penny, for example. So in other words, there's a vibrant discussion about these issues that Locke's few treatises are entangling with that we have that that actually relate to real court cases and real policies and, you know, hundreds of thousands of real people. And we have been compressing it all into one really simplistic category. One of the scholars who's most important in 
I would say, confusing the distinctions between people and property. I mean, people as one kind of property and saying it's the same thing as other, owning other kinds and that there's no debate and that just people, everybody agreed people could be bought and sold. With C.B. McPherson, he, his theory of possessive individualism where he argued that Locke did exactly that. How did Locke challenge the intellectual link in feudal law between hereditary property ownership and hereditary power? He argued that the ownership of property does not give a power over the people who live on it. That was the most important thing. That's, that's, he says it repeatedly through almost all the first treatise and again in the second. So he says this is just a false equivalence. You can't give the power of governance over people just because they're living on your property. That's a separate thing. So that's probably the most important uh, intervention he made. He also very explicitly challenges the idea that subjects are bound to a ruler over generations. So one of the ideas in fetal, fetal theory has, has been, you know, reinvigorated in legal treatises by, like those by Henry Spellman and, and Edward Cook as republished in seven, you know, literally the 1720s and 30s with the idea that obligation is hereditary. And if once an ancestor said an oath to a, you know, former king that all the descendants of the, the oath taker were bound to the, um, descendants of the, you know, by primogeniture of the, of the person who had, they had once made an oath to. And that is, that is explicit in, in feudal law and theory and theories of the divine right of kings. And Locke says very explicitly over and over again, for example, in his chapter on conquest in his two treatises, he says, the oath taken by a parent does not bind the child. There's no such thing as hereditary obligation. He also challenges quite um, articulately, in, especially in the first treatise, the idea that uh, the hereditary lineage of kings is the idea that the eldest son should get all the power not only over all the rest of the subjects, but over his own, his own brothers and siblings that you know, so that in other words, he's he's fighting the hereditary principle on multiple fronts, and he says basically instead that government should be based on the consent of the governed, which is a very different idea for power, for a basis for power than hereditary obligation. What evidence did you find that Locke wrote some of the chief grievances of the present Constitution of Virginia with an essay towards the remedies thereof? Why have historians excluded this text from Locke's corpus? So I'm actually going to start with the second part, sure. second question first. And that is the, the chief grievances um, for the present Constitution of Virginia was found as a manuscript rolled up with other documents related to Virginia, most of it in Locke's own handwriting or that of, of his amanuensis, somebody who transcribed things for him. Um, and they were found rolled up in a cubbyhole in his desk when his papers were acquired by the Bodleian Library in the 1940s, so just after World War II. And when his manuscripts were first cataloged, the cataloger actually attributed these documents to Locke, among others. But Peter Laslett, who was, well, he was actually first, interestingly enough, a commentator for BBC News, and he became a professor, and, when, and he helped get money from a Paul Mellon, a wealthy financier and 
charitable donor in the United States to pay to acquire these manuscripts and to get them for the Bodleian Library. And he he then I don't I don't know the details of the exact story, but then he went on to get his doctorate and to get a position at Oxford as a professor and uh, and as a chief sort of curator and scholar of of Locke's canon. And he, in the 1950s, he wrote an article where he implied that even though Locke was on the Board of Trade and so there would have been a reason for him to be interested in Virginia, that Locke could not uh, have been the author. And he, he proposes that instead some visiting Virginians sort of dictated to Locke. So even though they happened to be in Locke's handwriting and they were in his desk, it was Locke's just transcribing what some visiting Virginia had said, that Locke wouldn't know that much about Virginia. So that's how I would say they it got misattributed. How did I attribute it? Well, I I had been working. I actually started not with Locke. I was working on, although I studied Locke extensively and other many other political theorists when I was in graduate school. I I had this particular project. I was looking at the evolution of Virginia slave law and land law in the early 18th century and late 17th century. And I was just tracking debates and, and looking. At first, I thought it was happening only in Virginia. And then I realized, oh, it was happening with all this correspondence with the empire. There are a lot of people involved in this. I was just tracking it all. And so I was actually going through the Board of Trade records and looking at how they were asking so many questions about what was going on in Virginia in terms of land ownership and in terms of servants who were sent over there and in terms of status, in terms of corruption. And I was tracking all this. And so then when I, I actually encountered the written, there was a published version of these, of the Chief Grievances of Virginia that was published in the 1960s by a man named Michael Kamen, who was, had sort of followed uh, Lazarus Lead, and he said, oh, these were by, mostly by this Virginian who dictated to us. Anyway, when I actually read them for the first time and I had seen everything that was coming out of the Board of Trade Records, it was so obvious that, of course, they were by Locke. I mean, especially if you have read his two treatises. And, and so then I had to try to figure out how they had decided that they weren't by him. And it didn't make any sense to me. So then I went back and tried to put everything in exact order and including a lot of the correspondence from the time and um, what was going on with the Board of Trade on a day-to-day basis and how they responded, where, you know, what, what all the, you know, putting all the clues together. And when you put all the clues together, there's just um, no question about how Locke would have known, you know, that he knew so much about Virginia. He was asking questions for two years about what was going on there and interviewing a lot of people and then, and then coming up with these observations and reflections. And they fit in so many ways, so closely with his two treatises. It's a, um, it, it, it seems really bizarre. I mean, it, by any other standard of proof for how we designate who's the author of a document, it would meet and exceed it. But for whatever reason, Peter Laslett did not want to. I think he not only didn't think he would know so much about Virginia, but he sort of didn't. I speculate in the article that perhaps he didn't want to see them as by Locke, that they there are some pretty radical suggestions in these documents, such as confiscating estates of land that were gotten on false pretenses, for example, um, that Peter Laslett maybe felt were not the Locke that he wanted to portray to the world. So I think on a, some sort of a level that 
it was about creating a canon that fit his vision of what Locke should have been and not what Locke really was. Could you talk about Governor Nicholson's decision during the William Miller case and what the case tells us about Locke? So the William Miller case was a decision in 1699 that the Governor Nicholson of Virginia decided in Virginia itself with the help of two or three members of the Privy Council, three members of the Privy Council, his Privy Council. And it said that William Miller was petitioning to get 50 acres of land for each of, of several Negroes, and that's the word, the words used in the case that he had purchased. And it was a fairly routine transaction. There had been, um, there had been more than 10,000 such requests in the previous few decades that had been filled with grants of land. And Nicholson ruled that that was not what the king's original proclamation had meant to imply. It was actually reversing, in a way, what the king had said, but he was doing by way of interpretation. And that no longer could anybody get 50 acres of land for buying a slave, but that the only people who could get land were actually indentured servants once they themselves were freed and that they would then get 50 acres each. So it wouldn't no longer go, in fact, to masters, the landlords, either people who bought and then, you know, bound servants, it would only go to freed people themselves once they were free, and that it could no longer go to, especially to people who bought, quote-unquote, Negroes or Africans or what were beginning to be called slaves. And what I was able to show is that Locke was concerned about this, had been concerned about this issue consistently, that getting rid of the 50-acre land rights land grants, the ability for people who bought a bound laborer or a slave to get 50 acres of land in Virginia was, was a, one of Locke's great concerns in his questioning and in his comments in, uh, on, on Virginia's constitution, and that in the instructions that, for, that he was, as member of the Board of Trade, that he crafted, um, that went to Virginia's new governor, whom he helped get appointed, which was Nicholson, it explicitly said to get rid of this provision. And um, and so that and, and Nicholson explicitly says I'm following my instructions. The instructions I was given, which were written, I can show by Locke. And in the margin, when he he had he read he read the summary of this case when the case itself was included in the document, and Locke wrote the words "Well done" when he read Nicholson's report. Why is it significant that Locke always used the term "servant"? or Negro servant, never slave, in Board of Trade correspondence in the 1690s? It's significant because I think Locke refused to admit that their legal status was any different, was hereditary, was perpetual. He promoted also in his suggestions about reform of Virginia's constitution, that the children of Negroes, quote-unquote, be baptized, catechized, and bred Christians. And this was, I think, part of his way of trying to make sure that they had the status of subjects so that they were equal under the law. And this is important. This is was an important part of being a subject because in order to become a subject, you had to be able to swear an oath of allegiance to the king, which required that you were, you were at least nominally Christian. So it was a connected set of ideas more broadly in the law and especially in Locke's writings and suggestions for Virginia. So for me, 
his refusal to use the word slave in any of his correspondence in the 1690s, but always just to talk about Negro servants, spoke to his belief and I think his efforts to challenge and undermine um, many of the ways in which slavery was marked as a separate status in the colonies. And the fact that in 1696, Butts versus Penny had been overturned in the high court by the Southern case, Chamberlain versus Harvey, which denied that slavery was, you know, that they said you can, you can have a servant if they have agreed to serve, but you really can't have a slave, that it all pointed towards this logic in Locke's ideas in the 1690s that really challenged uh, slavery. And that connects to my next question. Why do you think Locke said that the children of black Virginians or in the colonies should be baptized? Right. So, yeah, I, I sort of answered that just now, but that it, I believe that for him, I mean, he says it's a difficult question and he's really torn by it. And if you know about his essay on toleration, you understand why he thought that people should be able to choose their own church. But I think he also recognized more fundamentally that if there wasn't some sort of Christian status for them, then it was much easier to exclude them logically as aliens and therefore as without rights, which was the logic behind the Butts versus Penny decision and was the logic presented by the by the defense in the Chamberlain-Harvey case that essentially people um, were, are, are heathens cannot be subjects. They have to be aliens and aliens have no rights. So that, in other words, crucial questions of legal status hinged on the question of who was Christian and who was not in English law. That provision was a recognition of that. Locke also, he was Christian, he had, but he had a very ecumenical, very broad view of Christianity. As he, if you look at his uh, Reasonableness of Christianity, which was published in 1698, but he he very much believed in religious choice, so it was it was a it was a very difficult question for him. But here he was coming up with a practical response. How does your article influence the ability to assess and regulate capitalism and corruption in the present? I think what Locke sketches in his essay on Virginia's Constitution is signposts for how to prevent or minimize corruption and to put in place limits to make sure people don't hold multiple offices to object against hereditary power. I think through it you can see some of the reasons why many of the restraints on the power of the president in particular were put into the U.S. Constitution that the founders who wrote the Constitution were also aware of this longer history that I trace in, in this particular article. I think it makes you keenly aware of how quickly corruption can take over and how difficult it is to prevent, but it suggests, I suppose, some first steps to do so. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed yeah. talking with you.